Uh, it's great to be here and welcome uh, to our gathering. I've uh, I felt quite emotional, I think, actually coming in today, partly because it's 40 years uh, of the National Institute and it's made me think back to 1979 and what's changed since those days, um, partly because we had a funeral in our church on Tuesday and a man who was born in 1933 passed away after some significant dementia um, in the last year or so and just reflecting on his life was quite a privilege and we sang it as well with my soul and um, that causes you I think to to think about uh, life more generally. I wonder what you were doing in 1979, we'll have a 40th uh, anniversary dinner tonight. I was um, still teaching in the public school system in um, Wayland High School in Mount Druitt. It was my third year there and I was really enjoying it and I had no plans to do anything other than uh, stay within state schooling and uh, that year um, Billy Graham uh, was coming to Australia and I was uh, offering to be a volunteer counsellor at the crusade at Randwick Racecourse uh, and I went to a training meeting, ran into the uh, current, uh, the then principal of Tyndale Christian School in Blacktown in New South Wales and uh, we had a conversation which led to me leaving uh, the state school system and starting at Tyndale in 1980. And I think um, I think I read uh, No Icing on the Cake that year. Uh, certainly uh, became aware of it very early on and it was such a significant book and made quite an impact on, uh, on the nation, on the world really, around the world. It's still referred to in, in many places and it's been a, a tremendous journey over 40 years. Uh, and so we find ourselves here today. In 1971, we had one child, and now we've got uh, four grown-ups. Uh, they've all been married, and one is divorced now. We have seven grandchildren, uh, so from one to a multiplying family. In 1979, we lived in Mount Druid in Hebersham. Uh, we've been in Auckland for 12 years and now in Springwood in the Sydney Blue Mountains. So a lot has changed, a lot to sit, reflect, give thanks, lament. Uh, and recognise the sovereignty and surprising will of God uh, through 40 years. In the first session today, and this is the first of two, I want to address the theme of the conference, which is faithful presence, and I, I guess I would like to call us maybe back to, but certainly reaffirm what has been distinctive about this movement from its inception, uh, and hopefully burrow into what that means for us, particularly in the session uh, tomorrow uh, and uh, open up for some discussion I trust and some feedback as well as we have opportunity. In uh, 2010 I was soon to commence a five-year tenure as Principal of Laidlaw College in Auckland in Aotearoa, New Zealand when I read a book that stirred me deeply it undid me, really. Uh, you know what, some of them, sometimes you read a book which uh, just changes the course of life for you. This was one of those. It challenged long-held assumptions, and I want to refer to that book in starting today. The book was To Change the World, The Irony, Tragedy and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World by James Davison Hunter. It was published that year, early in 2010, and uh, September that year, I commenced as principal at Laidlaw, and 
I'd been reading and thinking about worldviews, uh, had written uh, a diploma for distance students, a three-year diploma, uh, for quite a while when I read his book and much of what he said in his first essay uh, shook me really to the core and changed some of the assumptions that I'd been working with. The book consists of just three essays. Uh, the first one is entitled Christianity and World Changing. The second one is Rethinking Power. And the third one, which I mainly want to speak to today, is called Toward a New City Commons, Reflections on a Theology of Faithful Presence. All three essays are really worth reading. Uh, and the book has caused quite a lot of controversy. The discussions and debates are ongoing, and I'd encourage you to join them. Early in his book, Hunter asserts, to be Christian is to be obliged to engage the world, pursuing God's restorative purposes over all of life, individual and corporate, public and private, this is the mandate of creation. Then he notes how in writing about our task in the world, Christians frequently use the language of renew, restore, reclaim, transform, make a difference, change, shape, even revolution and revolt. Uh, we do in our movement uh, as representative of what he's saying, this language of renew, restore, reclaim, transform, uh, is common uh, in Christian, particularly uh, circles where worldviews have been considered. Hunter then mounts a withering critique of the naivety and poor understanding of much of that writing and many of those claims. He undermines what he calls very simplistic views of transformation and of the world and culture and change. The debates, as I said, continue around what Hunter wrote, uh, but it's with engagement with the world that I want to focus in the two sessions that we have together. And I want to ask the question, so what are we talking about when we talk about transformation? What are we talking about when we talk about engaging the world or being engaged in our cultural times and places. We don't want to be amongst those who are simplistic in this regard and uh, I trust that we're willing to do the hard work to think well about cultural change, education and engagement of the world. In a diagram that I've been developing now for probably 20 years, uh, it's sort of thing I think out of, and so I want to share it again this morning so some of you will have seen it, uh, now used in the CEN professional learning course uh, called The Bible in the Belly of the School, which we're hoping to bring to all of the schools in the next little while over the next years, and also in the NICE Masters of Education course, EDU 400, Biblical Foundations of Christian Education, one of the core courses, uh, a must-do course really for all of our teachers, principals, board chairs, board members. We commence by thinking about our locatedness. Uh, I'm sorry this is not a bit bigger, but I, I think you'll be able to see it okay. We talk about the fact that we find ourselves in the 21st century 
uh, in the cultures and worldviews and educational arena of the 21st century. And we are inevitably and often naively engaged in those times and places. We are deeply engaged at the level of our language, at the level of our experiences, at the level of our family life. We are deeply engaged in the stories and symbols of education and culture and worldview in the 21st century. In this diagram, we want to contend that we have already been deeply formed by our times and places. Uh, if we're talking transformation, we're probably talking simplistically. We need to talk about counterformation because we are already deeply formed. In a podcast I've been listening to, in fact, I was listening to it as Mark started today. <laughs> it was very edifying. Uh, called This Cultural Moment. John Mark Comer from Bridgetown Church in Portland, USA, and Mark Sayers from the Red Church in Melbourne, assert that our post-Christian, progressive, secular, deconstructionist, highly individualised times are aggressively seeking to colonise us. They say we live in corrosive times, times of powerful, shaping, globalised, impelling, compelling narratives, unlike any previously, appealing to desire and heart and will and humanness. They contend in their podcasts that we seriously have underestimated the powerful, formational, shaping narratives of the 21st century with which we are engaged, often unthinkingly and naively. As those who are committed to Messiah Jesus, our engagement must be grounded in God's word in scripture, to which God continues to speak. So this is not just a story of the past. This is a story to which the author continues to bear witness. This is a dynamic uh, enacted uh, narrative uh, more compared in recent literature to a drama that beckons our participation than a book that is historical. Let me run through again this outline of the scriptures which tell of God's purposes for the world and so have a teleology, they have an end point. Uh, we sung about the return of Christ in our, in our worship just now. But the story of Scripture starts with this person, this triune, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So it doesn't start with stuff or atoms or molecules or energy. It starts with a person speaking. And into being comes this creation which belongs to the Lord, uh, which fell into this tragic disruption, uh, the story told in Genesis 1 and 2, which gave rise to God's promises of blessing on Israel and the world through Genesis 12 and much of the Bible is about the unfolding history of Israel to Messiah Jesus. This era in which we live, the era of church and the promise of new creation has arisen out of what Christ did, what we call the gospel in his birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, enthronement, outpouring of spirit at Pentecost. And we find ourselves now reading scripture as Christ's people in the light of what Christ has accomplished and finished. We make sense of who God is in the light of Jesus. 
we make sense of the created order in the light of the God known in Christ. We make sense of the fall, the history of Israel, all that Jesus said and did, the church and the future in the light of what Jesus has done and said. We are thoroughly Christ people in our epistemology and reading of scripture. Some folks have portrayed the great story of scripture as a five or six act drama. I've got um, five or six there with a prologue and interlude. This is Gohin and Bartholomew's work and that's really helpful and we want to contend that if we're going to engage well with the 21st century we need to be people deeply immersed in this unfolding story of scripture. Immersion in God's word is not an option rather a joyful necessity if we are to faithfully engage in our cultural times and places. Immersion must shape engagement. Immersion must shape engagement. Culture seeks to be authoritative in our lives. Our language, our times, our places, our individual experiences seek to have ultimate authority. But we would contend that against the authority of our times and places, the authority of God speaking in Scripture shapes our engagement. We walk in a way, then, that is characterised by a rigorous dialogue between the word and the world, between immersion and engagement, such that we are counterformed by this word-world dialogue. My concern, since I did doctoral work back in 2000 to 2003, is that we often want to settle for knowing about the story of Scripture, for having a creation-for-redemption framework or schema, but not to do the continual work of daily immersion. We're not talking here about knowing the story. We're talking about living in it and living out of it for our times and places. And that requires a rigorous dialogue for counterformation between immersion and engagement. And both ends of that dialogue must be in place. This is essential for our teachers, essential for us as individuals, essential for our leaders. And eventually it's the way to be human for all of our students and educational communities. If we're committed to this way of living, we have decided to embrace a very significant tension. Uh, and we might say suffering. Uh, but Newbigin, Leslie Newbigin and others uh, who've done a lot of great work for us at the end of the 20th century, uh, they have spoken about the tension with which we choose to live as unbearable. Unbearable tension. Uh, Newbigin, 40 years in India, comes back to England, left around the time of World War II and returns after the revolutions of the 60s and the 70s and finds that hope has disappeared from Western culture. He embraces tension in England on his return such uh, as he had embraced in India in a different way for his 40 years in mission work. He saw the West as a mission field. 
I don't think the tension's unbearable, uh, but I do think it's very substantial. Um, Goheen, reflecting on Newbigin's work, asserts that this tension will be experienced in every part of life if we live faithfully. He writes, The more deeply one senses the contradiction between the gospel and the reigning worldview of a culture, the more the church will experience an unbearable tension. That unbearable tension comes from three factors. The church is part of a society that embodies a comprehensive cultural story or worldview that contradicts the gospel. The church finds its identity in another equally comprehensive story that it is called to embody. And the tension arises because there is an encounter between these two stories in the life of the church. How can one live as part of a culture and be relevant and yet at the same time be faithful to the gospel? Immersion, engagement. Counterformation with tension. That's what we choose to do. That's what we choose to teach our young people. That's why what we're doing is so challenging at one level. And so one of the most important questions we need to ask each other is, well, how are you coping with the tension with which you're living? What are your practices of rest and work? What are you doing to be in this for the long term? What does your engagement look like shaped by biblical immersion? And what are your practices of immersion? I often see that uh, on Logos, for example, which I use on, uh, for Bible study and sermon prep, you know, the plan to read the Bible in a year. As though that's a really immersive practice. That seems pretty limp to me, actually. Reading the Bible in a year, does that what immersion requires? What practices of immersion do we need to habitually develop? It's this question of cultural engagement that Hunter is exploring in Essay 3. And Hunter has got four paradigms of engagement. Now, he wants to suggest that these are more like postures toward the world. He's not trying to be philosophical. He's not doing what Niebuhr did in a far more detailed way. But he is giving us four ways to think about our engagement in the world. And so here are his four paradigms. The first paradigm Hunter discusses is what he def calls defensive against the world. He writes, this posture aims to retain the distinctiveness of Christian faith and life within our cultural times and places. And it has in part given rise to a complex empire of parallel institutions in music, education, media, law, etc. Uh, there's some impetus from this posture, I think, to the schooling movement of which we're a part and other schooling movements. Christians have sought to defend themselves against an intrusive world and establish a parallel universe 
to the secular world. In this model or posture, the main problem in the world is secularization. This defensive against the world uses frequently the language of transformation and culture wars. If only God could be re-enshrined in the social order, culture would be restored. Uh, it tends toward an activism in the political arena and its primary posture is one of opposition to the world. The world needs to be defended against. In this view, Christians are trying to win back the cultural influence that they associate with Christendom in its mixed form. Greg Thompson, director of New City Commons, in his responses to Hunter's work, describes this posture as one of seeking to dominate. Domination, he calls it. The domination paradigm, Hunter asserts, understands that the fundamental calling of the Christian church or Christian communities is to triumph over cultural enemies. The first posture, defensive against, Greg Thompson calls it domination. Paradigm two that Hunter speaks to is what he calls relevance to the world. Relevance to the world. Defensive against, relevant to. This posture makes a priority of being connected to the pressing issues of the day. It takes engagement really seriously. There's less emphasis on the biblical and theological grounds of distinctive Christian faith in pursuit of a conversation with contemporary culture. The main focus of critique is not contemporary culture, rather the intransigent established church seen to be increasingly irrelevant and disconnected and bogged down in traditions and liturgies. There's a quest in this posture for something more authentic and real for today's world. And he remarks that many of the initiatives in this paradigm feature celebrities and spectacles. Greg Thompson, in his reflections on Hunter's work, names this posture accommodation. He says the basic task of the church is active partnership with its neighbours in the interest of social renewal. And the basic threat that we face is the church's own separatist tendencies. In these pursuits, the church risks becoming indistinct and losing its prophetic task. That's posture two. Posture three in Hunter's work is what he calls purity from the world. This is a posture of withdrawal and it shares in common um, some aspects of number one, defensive against. It's oppositional in its understanding to the world. 
The central task is separating from the contaminating forces of the world and by so doing, returning to an authentic witness, perhaps imagined in the early decades and centuries of the church. The main problem with the world is its sinfulness, whether one thinks about sexual sin or violence or modern capitalism or the structures of political power. It also fosters an us-against-them mentality and can cultivate anxiety, anger and fear. Greg Thompson calls this posture fortification. He writes, The fortification paradigm suggests that the fundamental calling of the church is to guard the integrity of its divinely wrought life against the assaults of the world. In this view, the basic task of the church is vigilant preservation and the basic threat to the church is the destructive character of the larger culture. Again, the posture here is fundamentally oppositional to the world. Now, Hunter recognises that all three of these paradigms do capture something important to the experience, life, identity and witness of the church. He's not wanting to say that there are never times when we shouldn't be defensive against or relevant to or maintaining purity from. He's not wanting to rubbish these three. He's simply wanting to say that they're not big enough and fundamental enough to the biblical story to capture the posture to the world that we need to maintain. He says each of them seeks to deal with authentic biblical concerns. However, they don't realise the light of the gospel and the full shape of the biblical story. They're not adequate enough. So he proposes a fourth one, which has given rise to our theme for some of what we're doing in this day and tomorrow, what he calls faithful presence within. And here is, I think, a real embrace of tension. This is really in keeping with some of what Newbigin came up with in an earlier posture. This paradigm in Hunter's writing commences with the acknowledgement that God is faithfully present within the world. There's nothing novel about the language of faithful presence within. What Hunter is saying is that God has chosen not to be defensive against, relevant to, pure from. In his basic stance, God is faithfully present within the world. He loves the world. And Hunter decides that God, in his faithful presence, displays four attributes which are significant. Uh, we've been preaching in Luke at church over the last little while, and uh, I find these four very present in Luke's account of the gospel. God's faithful presence, first of all, means, in Hunter's writing, God pursues us. God pursues us. Uh, prodigal son, lost son, isn't it fantastic? The, um, the open-hearted hand of the father as the sun appears on the horizon and the son 
experiences of Father running to him. God pursues. God pursues. Think of Hosea. Think of Israel's history. Think of remnant theology. Think of return from exile. Think of prophetic witness throughout the Old Testament. God pursues us. He seeks us out in spite of our rebelliousness. Secondly, Hunter recognises that God's faithful presence signifies God identifies with us. He becomes human. He knows our joys and hopes, our failures and betrayals. Jesus sits with sinners at table. He opens the banquet to the highways and the byways and beckons in those who were not initially called or didn't count on that privilege. God has been born as one of us. Thirdly, he says, God offers us life. He cites scriptural texts amongst them, John 10.10, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And fourthly, he says, faithful presence is characterised by God's sacrificial, suffering love. He writes, Pursuit, identification, and the offer of life through sacrificial love, this is what God's faithful presence means. It's quite beautiful. He has moments when he soars in his writing. This is one of them, I think. He says, It's a quality of commitment that is active, not passive, intentional, not accidental, covenantal not contractual in the life of christ we see how it entailed his complete attention it was wholehearted not half-hearted focused and purposeful nothing desultory about it his very name emmanuel signifies all of this god with us in our presence. Greg Thompson prefers, rather than Hunter's incarnational model, the word imitation. Uh, incarnation, imitation are used by some of the commentators. Thompson writes, unlike fortification, the incarnational or church who imitates seeks to follow Jesus into every sphere of creation. Unlike accommodation, the incarnational church not only moves into the world but retains its integrity of God-given character and proclamation as it does so. And unlike domination, the incarnational church sees its movement into the world not as an angry movement of conquest, but a hopeful movement of redemptive love, seeking not to triumph over its neighbours, but to work for their flourishing. And I've always thought that that was the case. We, I don't believe, set up a school movement for its own sake. We set it up so that it would have a witness to the entire field of education so that it would cause education to flourish outside of our own boundaries, so that we would move towards neighbours not to triumph over them, 
but to work for their flourishing, whether we find them in other Christian schooling movements or in state systems. Immersion in scripture must shape this engagement with culture, times and places. An embrace of tension as we're counterformed by our immersion in scripture and our relationship with the God we know in Christ, this is essential for counterformation, for faithful engagement within our cultural times and places. And so that's the framework that I want to see retained in the next 40 years. I believe it's been well established in our heritage and we'll hear more about it tonight, I'm sure, as we retell some of the stories from 79 onwards for NICE and for earlier than that for CEN schools. But I do want to now look at one, I think, critical portion of scripture, uh, Philippians 2, and see how Paul works this out in the first century for the Philippian church. And if I can offer us a text for the year to come, this might be the one. Philippians 2, 14 to 18 is one of the most important passages in the New Testament, I believe, about engagement with the world. Here's the apostle writing, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Uh, this is a remarkable passage of scripture. Uh, Paul is writing to his friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, in Philippi. But Philippi is a particular context. Uh, it's a tough place to be a Christ follower in the first century. This city is a little Rome, an empire city. Um, many of the citizens of Philippi are military, ref returned from Roman wars, uh, now in retirement perhaps, and their families. Uh, but Caesar worship and adoration is as pervasive in Philippi uh, as it is in Rome. This is truly a colony of Rome. It's truly an outcrop of the capital. It's a little Rome. And this was the first city in Europe to which the gospel of Christ Jesus was received in Acts 16. Uh, the recipients of Paul's letter are saints in Christ, but it's interesting that in 4.15, uh, unusually, he calls them Philippians. He says to them, uh, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days... When I set out, and he goes on to talk about their friendship and generosity, these people are culturally engaged. They are in little Rome. It's challenging to live here. This is pervasively shaped 
by the worship of idols and most centrally the Caesar of the Roman Empire. Paul calls this world to which they belong crooked and twisted. We think our culture is deteriorating. We think the times in which we live with its challenge to religious freedoms are difficult. Well, these were difficult days in the first century too. Into these dark times, Paul commands the Philippian believers to shine like stars and illuminate the darkness. He's thinking of Daniel 12. He's immersed in Old Testament apocalyptic literature, which was so influential in the first century. And he tells them, literally, that they are to live in the middle, in the midst, among the people, the culture of Philippi. Not to the edge, not to the side, and certainly not fortressed away. They are to live, he says, in the middle, among. They are to live there in such a way uh, that they both hold on to and hold out the word of life. Uh, this text was the, um, historically the, the text of the Laidlaw Bible College, uh, Bible College of New Zealand. Lots of debates over the, the word Paul uses here. Uh, cling to could mean hold it into your heart or cling to as you hold it out to your neighbour. Hold on, hold out. Hold in, hold out. And I think we can have both. But what he's saying is you've got to cling to this other word of life, which is a shorthand way of speaking about the gospel, uh, the life of Jesus, the story of Christ. That's one of Paul's shorthand ways of speaking about the big story culminating in Christ. He says you need to live in the middle but cling to, this is immersion language, the word of life and become blameless and innocent in these crooked days. He most characterises that by saying to them, do all things without grumbling or disputing, which is a really telling, I think. Uh, this church, there's not too much condemnation on the church in Philippi, but they have turned against each other a wee bit. They're having some disputes uh, within. But he's not mainly thinking about that. He's mainly thinking about grumbling against God, grumbling against how tough this task is, grumbling about how much work there is to do, questioning God's sovereignty and goodness, purposes and will. He's recognising that suffering and sacrifice are inevitable. Paul and Silas themselves were beaten and thrown into prison in Philippi and they saw wonderful conversions as the gospel took root in the city. Now these words are for first century believers in Jesus in Philippi. But as he writes, he's clearly animated by two other stories in which he is utterly immersed. Now, here is the multi-layered immersion that we've got to aim for as well, I believe. And whether you notice it in the text or not, the language here has got grounds which go down several layers. 
Firstly, in these words, Paul is animated by the story of Israel in the wilderness. His imagination is thinking back to the wilderness generation of Israel now on the verge of entering the land of promise after a generation has wandered in the wilderness and many have dropped dead. As promises have been delayed, as the good life has, as it were, been put on hold for a while, as faithfulness has been really, really difficult. He borrows words from the Song of Moses in the plains of Moab when he writes, you must be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation straight out of Deuteronomy 32.5. Now, the newest version of the NIV actually uses uh, quotation marks, uh, but many of the translations don't signal the fact that he wants his readers to go back and read Deuteronomy 32. He wants the Philippian believers to realise this is not new. God's people have always had challenges, living in the furnace of the wilderness with the snakes and the lack of water and the lack of bread, but with sandals that didn't wear out, with manna from heaven, knowing grace and suffering, mercy and judgment, all wrapped up in this purposeful God who is bringing his people home, but in a most untoward way for a generation. Sometimes our work is on behalf of the next generation. Sometimes the fruit we will see will be seen a hundred years after we've passed into the Lord's presence. Paul wants his Philippian readers, Jew and Gentile, to read Moses, to read Numbers and Deuteronomy and Exodus. And his language is borrowed from those books, Exodus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And the grumbling, disputing language, it's clustered in a couple of chapters back in those books. This is not novel. This is Paul's immersion in the law and the prophets. He doesn't write freshly, as it were. He just writes more fully. Those days when Israel trudged in the wilderness, when it camped in the plains of Moab across from Jericho, it had a river to cross, a fortified city with which you contend, those days were crooked and twisted as well. And Paul is saying, Philippians, your days are crooked and twisted, faithful presence among. Secondly, he's animated, of course, by the story of Jesus. Word of life in 2.16, shorthand phrase for the gospel of Christ. He's thinking about Jesus. He does it all through Philippians the narrative of Jesus is his, Michael Gorman's word, master narrative. It's the way he imitates, it's the way he does life. Moreover, in this passage, he's thinking about the day of Christ's return, so that in the day of Christ, he is completely immersed in the drama of Jesus. His imagination and hope and prayer are completely shaped by the story of Jesus. Those two stories, Israel and Jesus. And then, of course, he's looking at the church at Philippi as it works out his story. 
But look at how he's working out his own story. And for me, this is most moving and compelling. Paul sees himself as a participant in the story of Israel, the story of Jesus, the story of Philippi. And then he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, Leviticus imagery, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, Philippian friends, I am glad and rejoice with you. You should be glad and rejoice with me. There's four narratives here. Israel's, Jesus's, first century church, and a personal one. This is immersion. I see my life, I see my commitment, I see my suffering, I see my hope, my prayer, my gladness, Paul says, as intimately locked in to yours, Philippian church, as it into Jesus, as it is into Israel's history. There is no individualism here and there's nothing completely novel or original. He's just bearing witness to the story he walks out of. This is the way for us to live. It's not a matter of having a Christian worldview. It's not a matter of knowing creation, fall and redemption. It's not a matter of transforming things by design only. It's a matter of living in this text, hearing this voice, walking out of this story in such a way that it's ongoing, reproduced, imitation, influence, engagement, counterformation, immersion, all of that makes us who we are as CEN and NICE. The apostle lives out of the biblical story of God, Israel, Jesus and the church of the first century participating in that story. So must we in the 21st century. With all of the tension that that brings for faithful presence in our time and place. I'm going to finish with a warning from Hunter, who is a bit bleak, really, about the state of the church when he wrote back in 2010. Uh, and summing up what I've been speaking to, he says this, The challenges to this calling in our time are formidable, to say the least. What has been missing is a leadership that comprehends the nature of these challenges and offers a vision of formation adequate to the task of discipling the church and, it mem and its members for a time such as ours. He's actually saying Christian leaders just don't get what a big task this is or what a comprehensive task this is because of what God has called us to do in this crooked, uh, crooked and twisted generation. But let's do it from faithful presence within, not from those other three postures. Um, I'm hoping in the second session to flesh this out and say, so what does it actually mean for us in terms of four or five more specific things? But I hope we'll embrace what we've said so far today. Let me pray for us and then... Perhaps there's time for a few questions or comments. Let's pray. Father God, we um, warm to the task in your calling on our lives because um, we look at our world which you love so much and see you faithfully present. 
and we long to be faithfully present with you as participants, not spectators, as active, not passive, uh, as counterformed, not um, culturally formed only. So today and this weekend, shake us up if it needs to be, uh, but take us and use us and we commit the next 40 years to you and the next generations of Christian schools uh, that this might be the task. We pray in Jesus' name.